Hey guys, it's Brandon. Today I have George Lovatis of Upslope Capital on the podcast. And before we dive in, just needed to give you this disclaimer from George at Upslope. So as of this date of the recording, Upslope clients had positions in certain stocks mentioned, including long positions in Diploma, Crown Holdings, and Evercore, as well as short positions in Coca-Cola Consolidated. Such positions may change without notice. Investors should always do their own research and independently verify related facts. Upslopes accepts no obligations to provide an update on such positions. Thanks again and enjoy the conversation. Hey guys, this is Brandon from the Valley Hive podcast. We are recording episode 22. Uh, today's guest is George Lavadas. He is the founder and portfolio manager of Upslope Capital. I got to meet George during last year's Value X Avail um, Investors Conference. Um, he's a great, great person, super smart, super sharp, and I always learn something reading one of his letters or scrolling through um, his timeline um, on Twitter. He's just got a bunch of good information for investors. And really, one of the best things about George is the content that he produced were, were his core investment tenants, which are available on his website. And we're going to dive into all of that today. I really want to pick George's brain on how we figured out those tenants. We're going to dive into some specifics of those. And we're going to just rock and roll through that. So George, without further ado, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Brandon. So let's kind of get started with the background for those that don't know you, because it was about, I guess, we were talking before the show three years before or since you've done your last podcast. So for those that may or may not know who you are, uh, who's George Lovatis? How did he get started in investing? Sure. Uh, so th- thanks again for having me, Brandon. Um, so my, my background, I, I uh, starting way back, I, I grew up in L.A., uh, moved kind of all around the country for, for school and work, um, eventually settled here in Colorado um, I think of my my career as you know the first half was more investment banking focused, and then eventually saw the light and uh, go over to to public equity investing. Um, and today, you know, I manage a, a long short strategy for Upslope Capital Management. Um, um, it's a, a one man shop, and and I think of it as really sort of a you know a classic hedge fund strategy, uh, long short, concentrated, focused on mid caps, uh, and somewhat international. So before we kind of get going further into the investing thing, I, I, I almost forgot one of your Twitter profile pictures is, I think it's Yamir Yager, who is a prolific NHL player. What's, what's with that profile pic? Because it's, it's just, it's just so interesting to me. <laughs> uh, it, it, not, nothing too deep, uh, believe it or not. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, so despite the fact that I grew up in LA, I, I started playing hockey when I was about five years old. Um, and Yager was always, you know, I, I think always my favorite hockey player. Um, and, you know, today I sort of admire the guy. I think he, he he's always seemed like a really happy character and someone who just genuinely loved the game. Um, he's, you know, he's self-deprecating. He's, he's sort of made fun of himself for being old and, and still trying to play in the NHL, even, even at his old age. And, you know, again, just someone I, I sort of admire. Yeah, so... Plus, Oh, go ahead. Plus, his his nineteen uh, eighties hair picks are pretty great. Yeah, I know. It seems like you kind of rotate through them too, which is which is which is the funniest part. I'll see it. I'm like, that's a different photo. I'm like, it's the same guy though. <laughs> so take us so take us through. How did you get involved in investing, and at what at what point in your life did you you know realize kind of the aha moment? Like, you know, I can do this for a living. Sure. So I, you know, I always tell people I'm I'm not somebody who was who was reading Buffett letters when I was 12 years old. Um, it, it was really a process for me. 
Um, you know, I, I was a Russian major in college, and I, I did that because it was it was a really fascinating language and culture, and, and it was challenging and interesting. Um, but you know, really, I, I, coming out of college, I had this sort of vague and and kind of uninformed interest in Wall Street, um, and uh, you know, headed that way out of college. Um, and I, as I mentioned before, so the first half of my career was more investment banking focused. Um, I started out at Citigroup in, in this sort of specialized product group. Um, eventually, I went back to business school uh, with the, the great timing of starting in 2008. And I would say while I was in business school, you know, kind of leading up to and, and during business school that I, I kind of figured it all out. Um, in, while I was in business school in particular, I spent a ton of time just kind of holed up in my apartment investing and, and kind of trading my own account and, and learning how to do things and, you know, what it, what is it that makes stocks move? Um, and doing all that during the financial crisis, I think, was was just a pretty unbelievable time to be to be learning all of it. Um, and I think, you know, I, I th- there were a bunch of times during business school that I remember where, I, you know, I would sit there and kind of stare at the screen and do what I was doing for hours on end and time would fly by. And, and it was really then that I realized that it was what I wanted to do for a career. Um, and, and that I wanted to do it by myself, you know, I wanted to, you know, someday have my own, my own firm. Um, and then, uh, you know, coming out of business school, um, you know, it was sort of fresh out of the financial crisis and, uh, like, like most MBA students, I, I needed a job. So I decided to hide out, uh, back in investment banking for a little while as the economy, uh, stabilized a bit and then eventually got back on track and, and, you know, asked to move over to research um, at that same bank that I started at, uh, and then kind of quickly made a run for the buy side, and then and then started Upslope. Nice. Now, what was what was the investment style of George Lovatis like during that time where you were you know holed up in your in your apartment <laughs> trading? Was it was it you know flipping penny stocks or what were what were you doing? And 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 if it didn't look like what it looks like now. Um, walk us walk us through that evolution of, of of discovery and then realizing what does and doesn't work for you. Yeah, I I, I mean it it looked very different than today. I mean I think um, you know for one thing I, I learned a ton in business school um, just on the you know fundamental analysis side and and that was sort of learning it at the same time but not exactly applying it um, you know to my own investing experience at the time. Um, you know, I, I think it was it was less individual stock picking and more looking at ETFs. And um, it, it was, I think, I think it was around that time was sort of at the forefront of some of these kind of funky levered ETF products. Um, I, I forget the ticker symbol, but you know, there there were some you know levered long and short uh, financials products. Um, and I just I was just fascinated by the you know the toolkit that you had available if if you wanted to use it all. Um, you know, w- with these different products. And, um, you know, so it was a combination of understanding how news impacts markets and, and stocks and, and sectors, um, and then also learning a bit about these these unique products. And, um, you know, for me, I think I gravitated towards the hedge fund world as opposed to the long-only world because I, it, it's never made, it's never really clicked with me that you would have all these tools at your disposal and, and not actually use them. Hmm. Um, obviously some people, you know, are better at using certain tools than others. And so you shouldn't, shouldn't be doing, you know, using things that you're, you're not good at taking advantage of, but, um, I just, 
never understood limiting oneself to just, you know, being 100% long all the time. Why do you think, and this is this is just kind of going off on a tangent, but why do you think, especially in the value community, there's this sense of mm. um, kind of a disregard for shorting and almost like, it's almost like this ethical argument where it's like if you're shorting, you're betting against American business or you're betting against capitalism. Uh, why do you think it's so hard for value investors to wrap their head around shorting as a as a, as an effective strategy against a long only book? I I mean I I don't know that I would tag the value investor community specifically with that. I, I think most people think shorting is a bad idea and and. You know, in in some sense, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to it. I mean, everybody knows that markets go up over time, and so it's it's uh, you know, even even if you're really good at it, you're not going to make that much money usually, uh, especially through a cy- a full cycle. Um, but you know, for for me, it just I like I said, it always sort of clicked and made sense as as a, a great tool to have, and um, you know, I I'm I'm a big fan of the you know reduces correlation so much and allows you to sort of go through different periods of time without, you know, without too much stress. Yeah. I mean, especially, gosh, this last couple months is a perfect example of the benefits of having some short exposure to, uh, to, 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 to the markets. And that's, and that's kind of where, and that's kind of where I want to shift right now and, and kind of figure out, you know, what value means to you and, 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 and your idea of a value portfolio. You said in one of your letters, I'm not sure which one it was, it might've been a core tenant piece. Um, you said, you know, while we admire and agree with much of the traditional value investing approach, our portfolio looks anything but a traditional value in quotes, value portfolio. So dive, dive deeper into this idea of, you know, why, what, what makes your portfolio look different than a quote value portfolio? And why do you think people get hung up on this idea of a traditional value portfolio? Yeah. So the purpose of it is really to give people a sense for my own investing style, um, you know, and just kind of a general sense of, of what kind of things we actually own. Um, I, I think of, you know, defining value investing, there, there are kind of two ways. One is a practical way of defining it. And to me, that's optically cheap stocks that are, you know, heavily out of favor. So, you know, low PE stocks that everybody hates. Um, and then there's sort of the, the more literal. <laughs> thing is actually worth today. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not some kind of momentum trader or, you know, some other strategy. It's, uh, I do agree with the, you know, all intelligent investing is value investing comment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when I look at Upslope's portfolio there, you know, we do have a few quote traditional value investments, you know, with, with low key. You will. In that bucket, um, you know, and, and I don't go at the, I, I try to avoid stuff at the extreme bookends of both value and growth. Um, but I think in general, you know, someone would look at the portfolio and, and see a blend of, of a lot of stuff in there. So why do you think, um, you know, another, another, another part of your strategy is you lean towards mid caps and, 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 and you call, you call mid caps kind of the sweet spot for longs. And so why do you, why do you think that mid caps offer, you know, I don't, I don't want to say the best opportunity for longs, but in your in your opinion, you do like to hunt yeah, no. there, and you do think that there is, you know, some sort of advantage to mid caps. So, what is that? 
I I mean, so I, I'd say it's two things. So one, I I think it's you know it's really based on my experience and and knowing, you know where where I do best. Um, you know I'm I'm I haven't done much in it, but I you know I'm not good in micro caps and at the mega cap stuff. Um, but but more specifically, you know I I do think that in mid cap land, you still have so first of all you have good liquidity. They're they're reasonably big companies, not huge but but big enough, and they trade. Uh, pretty liquid, um, and then two. I think there are enough opportunities there to find, you know, really under the radar stuff that you know, not every hedge fund uh, and their brother owns. All um, so to me, it's it's sort of a combination of those things. Got it. Got it. Moving, moving, moving forward now to um, your 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 core tenants. So we've got you know this non traditional value portfolio. We've got this mid cap specialization. And one of the things that I really like about your process is you stress the simplicity of research and the simplicity of having a clear idea and a concise thesis. And one of one of these one of these tenets that I really want to spend some time on is this idea of return on brain damage, which I which yep. I you know I just I just love that concept. And basically, you refer to it with uh, with Sosnov's law, which is returns vary inversely with thickness of research file, which I just find hilarious. And <laughs> you kind of expand on this, and you say if you find yourself working hard to justify entering a position, it's probably not worth it. So, can you give us an example, just even from your own investing, looking back? You know, mm-hmm. it, it could be recent or it could be past of of where you kind of defied. Um, this core tenant of yours and how it ended up and what you do to help yourself not make those same mistakes? Yeah, I, I you know, I, 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 in preparing for this, I, I sort of took a look at it, at all the stocks I've been involved with since the beginning. And fortunately, I think there are, there really are very few examples of, of, you know, super complex situations that, that I've gotten involved in. Um, I think part of that is is just me being a little bit of a wimp and uh, you know, being afraid of, of of really messy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did kind of look at an example of of a name that I passed on. Um, I, I thought was sort of a good a, a good and, and kind of clear case study. Um, so I looked at a company relatively briefly called Intram, uh, which is this. It's basically a Swedish listed uh, bad debt servicer and purchaser. Um, and I, you know, I was, it's the type of business that a lot of the times I'm, I'm sort of drawn to and intrigued by, uh, there's sort of a counter cyclical element to it. It's, it's really uncorrelated. It's under the radar. Most people haven't heard of it. Um, and, uh, you know, so there were, there were a lot of reasons that I really wanted to like the business. Um, it, it fit well with the portfolio in general. Um, but I, and I, so I, I started doing the work on it. I, I kept going back to the idea, um, you know, like I said, really wanted to, to kind of get there on it. Um, but I ultimately passed because it seemed like there was just this really long list of, of, of really complicated things that you needed to figure out for everything to go right. Hmm. Um, and, you know, with a, as you can imagine, with a bad debt collector and servicer, um, you know, regulation is huge. Trying to figure out, you know, where regula- regulations are headed, uh, both in Europe and the U.S., and then trying to figure out, you know, how the competition evolves as that regulatory landscape evolves, um, figuring out the cycle because of the, and then on top of all that complexity and, and kind of ironic, given that they're a bad debt servicer, um, the company itself has a really full balance sheet. So <laughs> it sort of made the, you know, the margin of, of error 
you know, th there's very little margin for error if, if you get any of those really complicated things wrong. Hmm. Um, so to me, it, it was sort of a good a good case study and, you know, what to avoid. Right, and it's almost like, I guess if you want to look through through the lens of you know Occam's razor, where you know so much has to go right for 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 this idea to work, um, it just it just creates a, a less robust strategy. And you know, yeah. and you know, compounding on that, you also say that you know you should be able to organize your thoughts on each position in a concise written manner. You follow, you know, you say a one page written thing plus comps with, and I like this part, with 20 pages of info upstairs for answering questions. Uh, and the reason I like this so much is because in the investing world, it seems like we're so enamored with length and detail and just like the amount of slides that you can put on a, on an investor pitch deck. And I, and, and I just want to get your thoughts on like why, why you think that this allure of, of, of more in terms of research and information and work, like, why do you think more is, is often seen as better? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have any crazy, ins I, I'd say my theory is a lot of it is, is CYA related. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you can put together a hundred, a hundred slide deck, on something if if things go poorly at least everybody knows you you know you tried really hard <laughs> um I, I but obviously that doesn't correlate well with you know that doesn't necessarily correlate well with good returns and you know a good a good sound and straightforward thesis yeah um you know in, in sort of view you know really long pitches that that can't get to the point as is kind of unhelpful more than anything yeah, and I like I like the idea. I always go back to um, that 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 sum zero article that said uh, their shortest reports oh, yeah. on average generated the highest returns, which I thought was yep. really cool. Um, Forgot about that. Yeah, no, it's 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 good. I actually hope I can find it so I can put it in the show notes. But I wanna I wanna pivot now to your investment process, and you kind of alluded mm -hmm. to okay. this idea a little bit. Um, you know in reference to your uh that one company that was a bad example of of of, of Sosnov's law and i i just i just want to go back and 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 think about what makes a good investment for george lovatis like what what gets you excited and what gets you you know so excited that you spend hours and then you look up and you forget that you've you know you've spent the whole day looking at a company yeah i, I mean i there there are a few things i mean one is the the stuff that i tend to um you know, I, I, I look for stuff where there's on the long side, you know, some, some kind of secular tailwind um, and that it's it's a relatively, you know, I, I'm, I tend to like the stuff that's kind of sleepy. Um, you know, it's not when I say secular tailwind, I'm not talking about some, you know, 30 percent a year grower. I'm, I'm talking about something that grows, you know, I'd say high single digit, low double digit at the most. Um, just a, a good, well-run business that does well through the cycle and that most people kind of ignore and, and don't care that much about. Hmm. Um, and, and then in terms of kind of process, I mean, I, I look for companies with, you know, back to the simplicity thing, you know, really under, a, a relatively easy to understand business and financial model, um, clear competitive advantages. Um, I, I find that, you know, or I get frustrated where someone's making a case for a edge and it's clear that it's really just kind of a reach hmm. um, as opposed to something really obvious that hits you right in the face. Um, 
a, a reasonable balance sheet, obviously, is another thing. Um, and then just, you know, on, on management, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and focusing on, um, you know, transcripts and listening to earnings calls and, and seeing how management responds to questions. And, you know, the news as they should. You know, yeah. are, are they stretching the investment case when they shouldn't? Um, stuff, stuff like that. And then on valuation, just, you know, I, I want valuation to be reasonable more than anything else. Yeah, and I kind of want to unpack um, just kind of a little bit of what you said. And first off, you know, what are what is it what does it look like for you to have a business have an easy or a simple business model? Like, what is what are what are what are some of the components of a simple business model? Hmm. Um. I mean, I think uh, I think a lot of it is is just predictability. Um. You know, so I I think of you know the the easiest business model I can think of is like the can manufacturers that I follow. So like ball and crown. Um, I mean, I think, I think that's probably on the extreme end, but you know, they literally make beer and, and soda cans and yeah. they, they're really, really good at it. And they have, they have pretty clean competitive advantages, um, not necessarily against each other, but against new entrants. Um, you know, so, so just, I'd say predictability. Um, I, I have a tough time, uh, analyzing a business when I when when I have a hard time understanding the actual product, um, right. so you know I, I I tend to stay away from technology and software type stuff because I just as much as I try to read about it I, I don't get it. At all. Um, so you know a relatively simple product, um, you know not too I'd say not too varied of an of an of a product offering or service offering, um, and relatively focused. Got it. And I want to, I want to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap that idea into two of your recent investments that I want to talk about. But before, but before we go into that, I do. So in the previous podcast that you did, I listened and you mentioned um, this idea that, that, that you have for, for idea generation and you call it the walking around method. And I just found that really cool. And uh, I think, (laughs) you know, it was, it was, it was was funny because it was just kind of so simple. I'm like, huh, you know, like this is, this is not what, people normally do, you know, people uh, normally look at screens, they normally look at 13Fs and, you know, I've got this idea of a walking around method and now I'm starting to walk around my house waiting for ideas to pop into my <laughs> pop, in, <laughs> pop into my head. But uh for those so 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 for those that don't know or kind of, you know, have 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 no idea what this walking Briefly, around method yeah. is, um what is it? So the so first of all, I, I should say the walking around method is not my primary source for idea generation. <laughs> it's <laughs> It's it's one of, of a few things, um, you know. The uh, maybe I'll just kind of check off the bigger ones first. Yeah. Um, so I, I I I have a background in you know covering exchanges and brokers from my investment banking years, and then a background covering the packaging sector, uh, my time in research. So I I always have something going on in both of those sectors at any given point. Um, and for reasons I can get into, I I think especially the packaging sector is is just a great great space to cover in, in long short land. Hmm. Um, I also get ideas from transactions. So good and bad M and a, especially bad M and a, um, IPOs, spinoffs, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then I, I look at, you know, I sort of call it the targeted category. So looking at stuff that's in, you know, really in or out of favor and that happens to be complementary to the portfolio. So if, you know, if there's sort of a, like if I don't have anything in healthcare, 
um, and healthcare is really out of favor, then then maybe I'll start kind of you know working my way down into an idea there. Right. Um, and then the walking around method is sort of the the the, the last big one. Um, and I you know I sort of joke around about the the way that it's named, the walking around method. Uh, I don't know. It was maybe three or four years ago now. Um, there was a the, the parent company of Skinny Pop Popcorn went public, and I just remember, you know, I, I had seen it in the news. I knew they were going public, and I remember walking around the grocery store, literally walking around the grocery store, and going down the salty snacks aisle and seeing big display for Skinny Pop Popcorn, and fancy organic popcorns right next to it, and. Yeah, it should have been obvious just knowing that there's a popcorn company going public, but seeing that, you know, that aisle, you know, filled with all these different kinds of popcorns made it just the most obvious short I think I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, Where you had a, I think they had, you know, they came out around a billion dollar market cap or enterprise value valuation, and they literally made one product, and that product was. That's crazy. That's crazy. (laughs) typical walking around idea. Um, But at a, like on, on, you know, a little bit more serious note, like I would say the phrase it's, it's one that, um, you know, I think allocators don't like the idea of, of using the walking around method to come up with ideas because it implies there's a big element of randomness to it. Um, But, but in my opinion, it's actually, especially in the context of being a, you know, one tool of, of, a bunch of idea generation tools. Right. Um, I, I think it's great to have the randomness because, you know, to me, I, I would much rather have this sort of random process that spits out good ideas than, than the screen, you know, using the exact same screens that literally everybody else uses. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's, 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 you know, it, it, it gets back to this idea of traditional value being arbitraged away by all these algorithms. And I just, mm-hmm. I, just, I, I, I saw a, uh, I saw a post about, I, I I tweeted it. I linked to it. It was about Renaissance Technologies, and basically, it was it was it was uh-huh. a stat like their algos go through. Gosh, I think it was like thirty five thousand bits of information a second or something something uh-huh. crazy. Where it was like you know they 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 comb through like every filing every second, and it's just you know if you if you think you have an advantage by running a you know low PE screen, even on these even on yeah. the smaller cap stuff, it's like you know you're you're kind of you're kind of lost. But I do wanna I do wanna dive into those two sectors that you mentioned packaging, and uh, I think you mentioned what was it banking the other one or, or brokerage. Uh-huh. So uh, exchanges and brokers. Okay, yeah. So talk to us about both of those sectors, and you, you know, you can start with you can start with packaging because you said it's a really cool place to look on the long and short <laughs> side, and so and so I want to know why and kind of what what makes you interested today in that sector. Sure. Slight correction. I didn't say it was a place. Um, Brandon, you still there? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 cutting in and out a little bit. So actually, if you if you just kind of um, touch on the packaging sector, I'm gonna mute my sure. end over here and try to move upstairs while you um, drop some knowledge <laughs> bombs for me. <laughs> okay, that's good. So on the packaging sector, I like I said, I I think it's 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 not exactly a cool place. It's a pretty boring place. Um, but that's you know that fits with my style and and what I like to to focus on. Um, I think it's a great long short sector because it's a very 
there's a very finite universe of companies. It's it's really the companies that I follow. It's it's you know less than a dozen. Um, they are mostly mid caps, which is convenient for me. Um, and uh, there's there's just this very wide range of of types of companies within there. And what I mean by that is really cyclical business with you know really mediocre at best management teams. And you have some really really great businesses in there that are you know these sort of niche you know specialty packaging companies with with pretty good management teams um, and and clean balance sheets. Um, so there's always because of that that variety there's always something to do uh, I think both long and short um, I I don't think uh, and there's been a time where I haven't um, you there? and then you want me to touch on yep yeah okay cool yeah no I just I just got everything set up um, but yeah no go ahead and touch on um, the 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 other sector the uh, brokerage house business yeah and then so then on exchanges and brokers um, you know, since inception, maybe this will change someday, but I, I've always had something on the long side in exchanges and brokers. Um, occasionally have had shorts, but they've been short-lived. Um, I it's It sort of touches on something that I alluded to before, where I, I tend to be drawn to, to businesses that have some kind of element of either being a little counter-cyclical or just uncorrelated. Um, and so I've I've always been a big fan of the exchange sector because especially the ones that are volume driven um you know when you have a time like you know like q1 um volumes ramp up and the business actually does even better than it does right and there's a point where it gets you know it gets a little too intense and it starts to harm the business but but in general they're you know they're much more defensive in that in that sense um yeah, no, I I think it's I think it's I think it's great, and it's and it's interesting too. In 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 light of that, um, I was reading the other day that, or maybe it was yesterday, that uh, Interactive Brokers lost eighty eight billion dollars on that negative crude oil contract, um, <laughs> which is just million. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, that whole thing is. Uh, you know, I I don't I don't know if you've got any thoughts just just kind of on a on a on a one off on the whole negative crude. I mean, it was it was hilarious to watch over Twitter. I mean, you had everybody. Just, just, just. To, I mean, people that didn't even, don't even look at the energy sector, don't even care. It's just like, oh my gosh, you know, you've got negative oil. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to the experts on, on that topic. I, I don't, I don't know that I have a, a strong opinion on it, but it, it was wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. So, you know, going, going back to your specific process, one of the things I'm always interested in uh, between investors is how long it takes them from the initial idea generation to putting the stock and allocating it into their portfolio. And I know some people sure. spend months, others spend weeks. And some of that is a function of kind of like what you said, the simplicity of the business model and how well you already mm-hmm. understand that industry. But on average, do you find yourself spending a lot of time before putting a position on, or do you you know, like an idea, put a starter position on and then do more work? I, I, so for me, it, it, it all depends. It, it sort of varies. I'd say, there have been times where I've, I've spent a week, you know, basically a week head down, like as much as possible time every day focused on one idea. And then I've put the position on, I think, in an, in about as short as a week. Um, I think more recently, like in the last year and a half or so, more typical cadence is uh, I'll come over yeah, or see an idea that's interesting. Um, I will do work on it at a little bit of a, a more intermittent pace. So I'll, I'll kind of 
you know, do some work on it here and there over the course of a few weeks. Um, and then I'll, I'll spend a ton of time thinking about it, you know, in the shower, in the middle of the night, randomly, you know, kind of all over the place for a month. Um, and just kind of mulling it over and, and, you know, so I think it's the, the actual process of doing the work is, is more, you know, it's relatively short, I think a couple of weeks usually. Yeah. Um, but, but really thinking about it a lot is, is kind of, I think at least as long. And when you, and when you mull over, you know, this idea, is it more about mulling over the qualitative aspects of the business, like its competitive advantage and, and its, and its position in the industry moreover than it's, you know, let's call it its valuation and how much you pay, or do you find yourself, you know, kind of spending equal amounts of time just thinking about the price and then, you know, what the business is actually going to look like over the next five years? Yeah, I, I think it's more, it's, to me, the valuation part is, is a little more straightforward. You know, I, I you generally have a good sense for whether, you know, a stock is fully valued or, or you know, or reasonably valued. Um, so I, I'd say it's more on the qualitative stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, literally thinking about whether owning the stock will keep me up at night. Um, is it something I'm going to worry about? Do I trust the management team? Um, are they, you know, are they good or are they bad or are they trustworthy? You know, just, just general stuff like that. Um, and, you know, trying to, trying to figure out whether, you know, whether a, whether it's, you know, it's a good idea and, and B, whether, um, you know, it's the kind of idea that I can have conviction to, to hold for, you know, through good times and bad. Hmm. Right. Exactly. And, 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 and two of these ideas I, I want to, I want to circle back to now that I read in your last letter, it was, um, diploma and EVR. So if you want to, yep. if you want to just kind of take the time, um, to flesh out the thesis and kind of walk us through what you've been talking about in theory so far and, 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 you know, to give our listeners an idea of what this looks like for you in practice. Sure. So I'll, I'll, go through them quickly, but so diploma is a, um, think of them as a, a basically a specialty distributor, um, listed in the UK. Um, um which is really kind of like O-rings and things like that for heavy machinery, um, and then controls. Um, and really their niche is, is there these really, you know, tiny kind of specialized products that, that are, you know, for the most part consumable. So, companies use them in their operations um, as opposed to just capex spend um, and it's it's a stock that I, I ironically um, poo-pooed screening is as, as a source for ideas but I you know I think I did actually come across diploma for the first time with some kind of very generic screen um, and I, I think it was about a you know at least a year ago that I first came across it um, and I was sort of fascinated by this business that you know, it's it clearly there's a cyclical element to it, but there's also a, a good chunk of it. You know, the the healthcare exposure isn't particularly cyclical, um, and even the, you know, stuff exposed to heavy machinery and and you know and the the you know wiring and control stuff that's exposed to aerospace, um, that sort of behaves a little bit less cyclically than you might expect because of the nature of of what they do, hmm. um, and so I I was intrigued by that and 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 just they they also have this you know they, it's sort of a roll up model um, but it's it's a responsible roll up they don't have tons of debt you know they I think the balance sheet is um, and so it's it's a cash flow funded roll up model 
um, and they're you know they they do little tuck-in acquisitions here and there to supplement growth. Um, and management is you know so there's a relatively new management team, but the company has has forever had this you know this sort of mantra about returns on capital and and you know focus on that and, and free cash flow um, and a conservative balance sheet. Um, and so you know it, it's sort of I don't know it it, it was one where I. I Came across it, I really liked it, and um, it was obviously way too expensive when I first looked at it, and I think it got even more way too expensive um, <laughs> while I sat on the sidelines. And then, right. um, you know, for, fortunately during the during the recent crisis, I think the stock, you know, the stock almost got cut in half, um, and it's still not not it's definitely no traditional value investment, but it's at least a, a reasonable enough price where I felt comfortable finally starting a position. Hmm. And, 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 and before you go into, before you go into EVR, you know, you mentioned in terms of valuation, it's not a traditional value. I mean, what are you, what are you kind of looking to pay for these, for these businesses that you invest in? I mean, I assume um, it's not, you know, five times earnings or, you know, three and a half times yeah. cash flow or something, you know, it's, it's something non-traditional. So what does that look like? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I focus on a few things. So, I, I do look at you know free cash flow yield um, wherever wherever it's possibly relevant, um, but I you know I also I'm also not afraid to say that you know I I, I focus a lot on the company's historical valuation and mm. you know I try to look back as as you know as long as reasonable you know so through through kind of 2007 2008 so that you capture a full cycle um, and then think about whether you know. Obviously, in most cases, you've seen valuations have gone up. Um, in some cases, it's that's just the market going up and, and kind of taking everything with it. In other cases, there are legitimate reasons for a, you know a company has actually gotten better over that period, or maybe a company's gotten worse, um, or or maybe the balance sheet is really different today, and and that should influence it. Um, so just kind of thinking through that stuff and and whether in that context, you know, the the valuation is reasonable. Um, it's not. I wouldn't say it's particularly. Hmm. Yeah. It's so it's, it's, it's not like, you know, you're looking for, I'm not going to pay anything more than, you know, 15 times EBITDA. It's, 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 it's more fluid than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it really depends on, you know, on the company itself. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now take us, take us through EVR real quick before, before we kind of go a little bit further, just cause just so we can get, you know, kind of a, kind of a view on two different businesses and how you think sure. about that. So, core is is a so they're, they're basically a, a leading independent uh, boutique investment bank, and focused pretty pretty exclusively on M and A advisory and and kind of other other corporate finance advisory. Um, they do have a decent restructuring practice, but it's you know it's definitely not not as big as the M and A piece. Um, this one, I mean, in a way, it's funny. I was thinking about it. It actually is sort of a walking around method. Uh, position. I was an investment banker back in the day. And I, I remember, I mean, A, I interviewed with Evercore when I was in business school, and B, I, I remember competing against them um, and, and even doing some deals with them while I was a banker. Um, so it's a company that, you know, I'm, I was sort of already familiar with. Um, really think it has a, a great brand and, and you know, a, a leader in its particular niche. Um, this is actually a stock that we owned. Um, I think the first time I bought it was in at Q4 2018, I think in December. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's clearly you know M and A M and A advisory is extremely cyclical, um, but I think you know if you look at Evercore over time, they've they've shown an ability to to hire really good talent and to take market share uh, over the long run. Um, so I I you know I sort of observe kind of keep tabs on Evercore ever since we owned it for the first time and then then sold it last fall and then uh, recently you know the stock got got more than cut in half again and. Um, you know, I, I thought it looked completely reasonable again, um, even if I took a, a sort of hatchet to EPS estimates and 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 looked at a potential you know trough EPS number. Hmm. Yeah. No. What I'm what I'm what I'm finding just by talking to you know other investors like yourself is that valuation is what you said. It's just you know kind of this simplistic thing that you do mm-hmm. after you really understand the business, and it's something that's taken me a long time because you know as 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 someone who you know, when I look back on when I first got started investing, it's almost the mm. inverse now. It's like valuation was the most important thing and finding yep. the cheapest stock was the most important thing. But every investor I talk to that, you know, I really respect and that's, you know, manages their own fund and has done, you know, done really good things. They've all said the same thing. It's like, ask them about a business. They tell you everything about it, its competitive strengths, its qualitative aspects. And then, you know, only after the fact do they get around to the price that they paid. Yeah. Okay. And it's just, right. you know, it's just, it's just such an interesting observation. Yeah. All right, let's go. One of the other things I want to do, because you do short and, you know, you're the first kind of short seller, um, or at least, you know, partial short seller that I have had on the show, um, <laughs> you know, because I reach out to Jim Chanos on Twitter and he doesn't respond yet. So Jim, if you're listening, we've got friendly doors for short sellers, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> You know, specifically on shorting, I don't know. I don't know if I want to inverse kind of all the questions I asked you before because I think that that might not be helpful. But what are some of the characteristics that you're looking for in a short? And then what are the unique challenges about managing a short position that um, people that only go long might not know? Yeah. So I. So maybe maybe I'll start on the the challenges first because that's that's sort of an easy one. Um, you know, I, I think obviously the biggest challenge with with shorts, you know, trying to do it in a in a bull market, and most of the time we we have historically been in some kind of bull market. Um, so just fighting that that tide is you know or that trend is is, is really hard. Um, and then I think you know sometimes depending on how public one is with shorts, you know, you have the, the potential risk of, of companies going after short sellers. Hmm. There was sort of a, a well known. <laughs> broader case that, that sort of went around finance Twitter uh, a couple of years ago um, that I think, you know, right, rightly kind of scared a lot of people and, and, you know, stuff like that, I think is a challenge of it. Um, and then I, I think, especially for someone like me, who's, who's a, a one man band, um, just the, the time involved with short selling, I think is, hmm. is unbelievable. Um, it's, you know, by their nature, you have to size the positions smaller than your longs by, by quite a bit. Which means you need a lot of them, yeah. And um, at least my my style, and I think a lot of people's style, you you tend to manage them a little bit more actively in terms of you know trading the positions and you know sizing and resizing it uh, depending on on events. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just just managing the positions and, and constantly coming up with new ideas takes an unbelievable amount of time. Um, you know, I, I think I, I haven't it's. 
I would guess I spend somewhere around, you know, 60, 65% of my time on the shorts, um, you know, and, you know, a third of the time on longs, hmm. um, even though the, you know, the exposure is, is kind of flipped between the two. Um, so that's, that's definitely a challenge. Right. And then when it comes to managing the balance between long and short, as you've, mm-hmm. as you've, you know, managed the fund over the years, have you noticed a particular sweet spot that you like to stay net exposure? And, and, you know, is there, is, is, is there any reasons why you might, you know, turn up the net exposure to the long or short side? Yeah. I, so I, I try as hard as I can, um, to let it be, you know, let the net exposure be guided by just bottom-up ideas. So whether I have a lot of good short ideas or long ideas, and, and what, you know, what the balance is. Um, but I've, you know, I'm I'm human. I have I have biases like everyone else, and and um, you know, some you sort of you're you're tempted to push net exposure up or down a, a little bit on the margin. Hmm. But in general, I, you know, it's it's really guided by by the bottom-up ideas. Um, Historically, I think average average net exposure has been around 40% for upslope, um, and I I would say I so when I market the strategy, the the range that that I've always talked about is is that net exposure, and that's that's all net long, mm-hmm. um, and I I've there have been times where I've I've thought about whether the, the 25% lower bound should be lower, you know, like zero or something. Mm. Um, but I've never, I, in my experience, even when I run it at, you know, at the lower bound at right at 25%, um, I, I get a little uncomfortable because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's incredibly hard. I think that the closer you get to, to 0% net exposure, um, and my own style you know, as we've sort of talked about is, you know, I tend to, to lean on more defensive type businesses, especially on the long side. And then on the short side, I tend to do the opposite where I, I go after shorts that are a little higher beta. Um, and so I, I try to account for that a little bit in, in terms of the guideposts for net exposure. Um, but, but Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, as as fun as it is to talk about, you know, some of your worst trades, I do <laughs> I do want to ask about, you know, a short in particular, you know, just just because of the fact of, you know, if a short goes against you, it becomes a greater and greater percentage of your portfolio. So mm-hmm. it's it's you know, it's vital to kind of to kind of keep these keep these shorts in check and to kind of know when things are going against you. I mean, we saw it with Einhorn and 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 kind of some of his shorts over over the last couple of years, you know, getting getting burnt and 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 and, and really seeing kind of the detriment of that. Um do you do you have any, you know, I guess we can call him, you know, kind of the Hall of Fame in terms of, you know, a short that 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 didn't work out and kind of how how you manage that trade and maybe lessons learned from that trade. Uh yeah, I mean I I that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I I hate to use the example because it's such a such a cliche. Um, you know, not, not because of the, you know, a bad thesis or anything, but I think, you know, I, I sort of broke some of my own rules, I think in terms of crowding, you know, I, I generally pride myself a lot on, on having a pretty different looking portfolio. Um, and clearly that, that was not one of the examples. Um, and I think, you know, some of the lessons learned there were, you know, were probably the, aside from avoiding crowd as much as possible, 
Um, you know, I think the biggest lesson was just kind of keeping sizing as small as possible for those battleground short ideas. Um, and really the point there is if, if you, if you, if you're in a battleground short name like Tesla or, or anything else, as long as you size it small enough, you can make it really easy on yourself to not touch the position. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think I, I, I tried as hard as I could to, to sort of, you know, keep it as small as avoid messing with it too much. And, um, but you know, I think I made some mistakes on that end as well. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, there's, there's no more polarizing stock on the planet <laughs> than Tesla. Uh, <laughs> Carvana or, or Carvana may, may be getting there, but Tesla, yeah, Tesla a lot of overlap. Yeah. The, the uh, short, both of those, it seems. Yeah. And, you know, speaking, speaking of shorting, um, I do, I do want to, I do want to shift into the importance of governance, and it's, and it's something that, um, you know, I, I saw throughout your core tenets is just, you know, the importance of, of, of governance and having a good corporate culture, having management mm-hmm. that's, you know, um, you know, morally aligned, and you know, are not fraudsters, and, you know, I just, it's something that seems to be not as discussed. When you're looking at investment thesis, it's almost like, you know, governance is just this afterthought of, okay, yeah, management owns 5%. Looks like governance is okay. Um, what are what are some examples of, you know, w- what good governance looks like and how can investors, you know, that are, that are scanning through companies, how can they kind of figure out which ones have good governance? Like, what are, like, what are some signals and signs? Yeah, I, I so I, I would actually... I think about it more from the opposite perspective. You know, what I'm, I'm more focused on what is, what does bad governance look like? Um, because to me, it's, it's a, not that you would ever own a stock corporate governance. Um, it's more the opposite where you, you know, you, if, if they have, you know, clearly weak corporate governance, then, then you're going to avoid it as much as possible or, or possibly short it. Hmm. Um, so, you know, to me, I mean, I, I don't think it, I have, have any secret sauce here, but, you know, it's, it's having, you know, a relatively independent and, and effective board, um, reasonable management incentives, um, you know, look, you know, this isn't, uh, maybe a textbook example of governance, but just, just a management team that's, that's straightforward in how they talk to investors uh, and how they talk to the sell side, you know, do they, do they answer questions in a straightforward way or do they dance around the issues? Do they pitch the stock in the business as something it's not, or, or are they, you know, realistic about it? Um, and so I think, you know, th- those are the main things that I probably look at. Um, there's also, you know, dual shares that uh, seems to pop up a lot um, in terms of, of, you know, lousy corporate governance. Can you take us through an example of, and it's, you know, the only reason is because I see, I see some of, um, you know, on Twitter, sometimes you'll share these management transcripts and, and, and some of, some of the management responses and, and, and I do want to go, you know, highlight a particular one, Coke, um, the, you know, the ticker symbol, it's not Coca-Cola, it's uh, C-O-K-E. And, um, you know, if you just want to talk about some of the, some of the governance stuff that you've seen there, it, it is, it is funny, um, you know, just, just, just between their mission statement and when they release their 8Ks. So for those that don't know, just kind of go into, you know, the examples of Coke as, as signals of bad governance. Yeah. So I, I think to me, Coke is, is a great example because it, it checks so many boxes and, and probably gives examples or gives an idea for other, other potential shorts. Um, so I, I think in, 
for those that don't know, Coke ticker C O K E is is uh, Coca Cola Consolidated, which is a, a basically a small cap Coca Cola bottler uh, as opposed to the real you know Coca Cola. Um, the company is uh, you know they they have a, a I think a relatively ineffective board. You know it's mostly kind of friends and family and, and close associates of the CEO. They have a dual share class structure, so the CEO owns you know. A, chunk but a, but a mi- minority of shares but controls the majority of votes um they have a pretty hefty related party deal section in in their proxy um you know for me that's that's the biggest you know red flag that that kind of gets me interested in shorts hmm. in general um and uh amazingly the company does not conduct public earnings calls so when they they really <laughs> And then, yes, like you mentioned, they they have at least recently had this tendency to put out, uh, you know, Friday post-close aid case as if people will, will not read them. It's so funny. I want to I want to go back to the idea of of of, of related party. Um, uh-huh. I guess I guess you call them notes in the in the in the, you know, whether it's 10 Q, 10 K or proxy. Why is that uh, such a know. why is that such a red flag for you? And why is it's it you know, a good indicator of uh, of, of potential shorts? I I mean it, it depends on on how serious it is, but it, to me it shows you where where management's um, you know what what their motivations really are. How how are they really getting paid? Um, you know, are they getting paid for doing a good job, or are they getting paid because they own the building that the company that the company operates in, and and you know they're getting all these perks on the side. Um, and I I I think about it as you know they related party deals. And you know, to me, if if they're willing to do them despite knowing that they're gonna, they don't have to disclose that that might also be unseemly. Hmm. Yeah. Nope. Nope. That's uh. It's you know. It's something to it's something to watch out for that. And and you know, the 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 dual class structure too is is also is also important. Um. I was looking at a company yeah. today where. You know the 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 CEO. It was a it was an ADR. It was a, it was an Indian listed ADR, and the CEO uh-huh. owned you know this common share class B, hundred percent of the voting rights. You know, mm-hmm. barely owned much of the common, and it's you know it's it's stuff like that can kind of save you a lot of time. You know, especially especially if you're biased towards the long. Like if you look at this idea and you and you know you're like, hey, I want to do this on the long side. If you find these things, you can save yourself a bunch of time and just not you know just stop looking from the long side at least for that idea. Yeah. Um, you know, so I want to I want to continue. You know, we're coming up on an hour and and you know I'm I'm, I'm really you know, appreciative of the time. I know working from home and stuff like that with COVID, you've got, you know, (laughs) you've got, you've got a younger, younger family, um, you know, maybe, maybe wanting to come in and, 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 and ask dad for, for some snacks and all that stuff. So, you know, I definitely, I definitely appreciate you, you taking the time and I want to, I want to kind of finish on this topic of knowing yourself and really understanding, uh, you as an investor from a psychological and emotional perspective and just kind of going back to your core tenants, um, two of them are 
you know, be flexible. If you never change your mind in embarrassing ways, you're doing it wrong. And then the second one is be cautious when investment narratives and political views sync up. And so if you just kind of want to expand on what both of those mean to you and, 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 and how those have developed into tenants for yourself over time. Hey, George, you there? there? Yeah, I think I think we got reconnected. Okay. Um, so you're asking if if I can expand on those two tenets? Yep, exactly. Yeah, so I I I think they're both relatively straightforward, actually. So in terms of being flexible and, and changing your mind in embarrassing ways, I mean, I I think about this as is you know if if you are open minded and willing to process new facts as they come along, um, then you should be changing your mind somewhat frequently. Um, and if you're not willing to do that, then there's a big problem. You know, you're, you're going to have a, a bad time on the investing front um, if you're not willing to change your mind. And, you know, part of this is, is I, you know, I, I, my first year at ValueX, I remember pitching, you know, Crown Holdings, uh, the, this, you know, can company. And I think it was about six months later, they did this terrible M&A deal. And, you know, I, I think somebody could, one could have rationalized the deal away as, oh, you know, well, the, it's a creative and, you know, it's good for cash flow and they can do it and all that stuff. Um, but it was it was pretty clearly a, a, a bad, dumb deal. Hmm. Um, and so I, I changed my mind on it right away. And But, I you know, it occurred to me that I had pitched the stock long at the conference, you know, six months earlier. And, yeah. and it was kind of embarrassing to change my mind on it. But, you know, it, something had really changed with with the story and the situation and, you know, a lot of my, my thesis points had been sort of struck. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that stuff happens and, and people just need to be as reasonable about it as they can. Um, and then when it comes to investment narratives and political views, I, I you know, I am, it, this is, this is really just a simple point that, you know, one shouldn't be bullish just because they're, a, you know, they're a Trump fan or bearish because they, they hate Trump. Um, you know, just, it's just a it's encouraging people to to think about their own emotions when it comes to this kind of stuff um because as you know as, as you talk to at least you know more retail investor types there tends to be a, a correlation i think between political views and you know who's in office and whether they're bullish or bearish on the economy hmm. um and that's not to say that you know it's 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 certainly really you know it's completely reasonable to take into account the political environment when you're investing um, but you need to make sure that you're you're being rational about it. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, on sort of the same topic. I mean, I, I found it pretty amazing that I think there's there's a decent correlation between pol- you know political views and and COVID views recently. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's sort of a it's sort of striking the same note there. Is, is that point? Yeah. And why do you why do you think it's so hard? Um, you know, maybe maybe it's not so hard on a on a on a case by case basis, but in general, why is it hard for investors um, to admit they're wrong after you know after after they've done the work, after they've <laughs> developed the thesis? You know, why 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 is there such this urge to, um, like you said, rationalize away these things and try to frame them in a in a view that conforms to your to your pre existing notion? I I mean, I don't, I don't have a great great answer i mean i i do lean back a little bit on you know i think wall street in general has this 
this sort of culture of, of you know, it's all about showing confidence. Um, one thing that frustrated me early on when I was, you know, right out of college as, as a, a banking analyst was I got feedback on a review that, you know, so I worked in this, I was a Russian major and I was a first year analyst in this very specialized um, fixed income product group. And I got feedback that, you know, in general, when I was asked a question, um, usually I had the right answer, but I needed to show a lot more confidence in my answers. Hmm. And, you know, to me, I, I sat back and thought, wait a second, like I'm, I'm this kid. I, I, I'm like 60% sure of the, you know, of, of my answers being correct or you know, <laughs> yeah. 65%. And so like, I'm, I'm usually correct, but, but there are a lot of times where I'm not like, this is, this is beyond me. Right. Um, and, and to me, it's, it's harmful to pretend that I'm a hundred percent sure that I know the answer to this, you know, hmm. very technical question. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think it, it kind of comes back to that a bit where, where, you know, you always have to pretend you're a hundred percent confident in something and, um, it, it makes people slower to, to sort of change. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny. It's, it's, it's investing is one of these games though, where you can be, I think I was, I was watching a Peter Lynch interview where he was at, uh, it was like uh-huh. that C-SPAN interview that went around Twitter for a while. And he said, you know, you could, you can be right, you know, three or four out of 10 times and, you know, you're a legend in the game if you yep. if you invest in the right companies. And it's just it's funny because you balance this dichotomy of knowing that you'll be wrong most of the time, but yet still fighting that 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 urge to want to be confident and to want to be right on each single idea. Yeah. I it's agree just, with that. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 frustrating, but it's what makes this game the best. Now if you if you look out or not not look out if you look inward and you know let's say let's let's take George back to when he was you know graduated um you know fresh out of out of out of college with his with his russian degree working working for you know working for a bank what would you do differently um when it comes to investing or business analysis you know what would you tell your younger self now if you could go back in time uh <laughs> i you know, I, so one, I think, um, start investing as, as soon as possible. And, you know, I, I, I don't know that I, I would have had an opportunity to do it even earlier, but, you know, start investing as soon as possible. Um, and then this is going to sound kind of very specific and, and random, but, uh, read, read the McKinsey book on valuation way sooner. Hmm. Um, I, you know, for me, that was sort of a, a transformative book in terms of how I think about valuation and what, you know, what drives value for stocks. Um, I had always, I I had always had sort of the investment banking mindset that the only thing that, that mattered in the world was, was growth and and margins and, you know, the higher, the better for both of those things. And, and it, it really kind of changed my view a a lot on, on, on that sort of simplistic valuation framework Um, helped me understand why, you know, why a company like Coca-Cola you know, trades at a reasonably high multiple despite low valuation, stuff like that. Hmm. So what? So that's that's actually interesting because uh, it's that's that's definitely a book I need to go out and buy. I haven't have not yet read it, so you know, it's putting myself on the spot very here. Very long and very dry, but it's, <laughs> but it's useful. Yeah. So 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 what do you think were the main differences between what you read in McKinsey and maybe what you see on a broader, more retail? perspective from you know first-time investors that are focused on valuation like what are they missing that you realized from reading that book it i mean it's really the the concept of of 
just return on invested capital. I think that was, it's frankly, it's been a while since I've read the book, and I, I should probably uh, re- refresh on it myself. But you know, it, it was really introducing the concept of return on invested capital, and and you know, looking at return on invested capital, you know, compared to cost of capital, looking at at you know, looking at it from a or in the sense of helping to inform, you know, whether the company has a competitive advantage and whether that advantage is sustainable or being sustained. Um, but like I said, really just focused on that, that sort of simple concept um, and, and applying, you know, sort of the math behind it and, and how it drives value of, of shares. Love it. Love it. I'm putting that on my Amazon list right now. <laughs> So I'm going to I'm going to wrap up this wrap up this podcast here um you know with 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 some concluding with some concluding questions once again you know George thanks so much for 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 coming on the show um you know it was it was, it was it was cool to to get to meet you in person in Vail and you know it's 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 awesome just to kind of catch up and talk 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 investing now um so you know just just kind of some last few questions here um for for investors that are just getting started and you know I know you alluded to it a little bit earlier in kind of what you would tell your younger self but yep. um if you could kind of give a uh like a like a course or like a crash course for new <laughs> investors you know uh, what are you know what would what would you want them to read you know what companies would you want them to study in order to get a really good idea of what investing means hmm. what what companies would i want them to study yeah just like great case studies that you think you know me you know look you know like this is this is what a great business looks like like a visa or a mastercard You know, I, I I would probably probably flip it around a little bit. I, I don't know that I would I would sort of hesitate to tell someone to, to look at a particular company. Um, you know, I think I think young investors should you know should really kind of figure out a lot of it themselves. You know, they should hmm. they should find a company that they're interested in. They should figure out you know whether you know what what drives value for the company, what the important important metrics are. Um, you know, I I think. You know, a lot of it, I think, has to do with the, you know, how much the person really loves what they're doing. Um, right. And, you know, it, they, they just have to be motivated by that. Um, you know, I, you, you sent some notes over, and, and one of the things, you know, asking about, one, one of the things you mentioned was, was you know, what would be good advice for, for young investors kind of looking to get into stocks. And one of the things that I mentioned and or that I think about a lot and I think is is relevant even for this sort of slightly different question is just not obsessing over the greats, um, so not obsessing over you know great other great investors, and you know I think you could apply that to companies too. You know trying to yeah. trying to find your own companies that you think are are great businesses that you know maybe maybe people don't know about just yet, um, and I you know I think that that applies here as well. So is it safe to say? Not obsessing over the greats, you do not have those bronze castings of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett's heads in your office. Uh, not, not yet. <laughs> it's just a cool twelve hundred dollars, George, and those things yep. are yours. <laughs> oh man! Hey, so where where can people go to learn more about you? I'm gonna I'm gonna link your you know your website um, into yep. into the into the show notes. They can they can look at you know your core tenants. I I, I highly encourage people that are that are listening to 
download the core tennis PDF and print it out. Um, I actually, when I, when I worked at an RIA in Baltimore, um, that was one of the first things I did at the office is I printed out your core tenants and I stuck them on a tack board and, uh, you know, any, any company I looked at, I, you know, kind of, kind of use it as a reference. Um, so I encourage others to do that, but you know, George, where can, where can people go to find more about you? Yeah. So I think really it's, it's just the website. So upslopecapital.com. Um, and then there's a whole section on, you know, with, with letters and, and other content, like you mentioned. Um, and then the, the Twitter account is just at Upslope Capital. Um, I'd say those are the main, the main, the main ways to find me. Got it. And now the question that you've been mulling over probably in the shower and at the middle of the night last night, <laughs> yep. if you could, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, uh, who would it be and why? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested on this because, <laughs> because before we, because before we came on, you know, before for, 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 for listeners out there, you know, a couple hours before each show, I reach out to the guests and I say, Hey, you know, just to confirm we're still on for, you know, so-and-so o'clock. And, uh, and George reached out to me. He's like, yeah, still thinking about this question. <laughs> so I'm ready. I'm ready. So the, the, the obvious answer is Yarmer Yager, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Um, that, that, I think that that would be a fun one. Um, and then the, the very practical overly niche answer uh, would be the COO of Market Access um, because he was previously the COO of CBOE and we own both of the stocks and the guy has had a, a, just this sort of amazing career across exchanges and brokers um, where he spent time at, at the SEC as sort of a, a market structure expert. He spent time at Virtu, which is a high-frequency trading firm, and then eventually made his way to CBOE uh, and, and Market Access. So he's sort of sort of covers every aspect of, of that whole space that, I, that I've been kind of fascinated by for, for a long time. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, no, haven't, haven't gotten both of those answers. So those are, <laughs> those are two unique answers. Yep. Um, so, you know, you, you, you knocked out of the park, George. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much I for tried. coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Brandon.